0: Good morning, it's good to be with y'all. If you would turn to Acts chapter 16, Acts chapter 16, where we're going to spend most of our time this morning, look at a few things about Paul and Silas and some lessons that I think we can learn from them, take away from some of their actions here in Acts chapter 16, and some things that I, just, I think this, uh, as Christians, we would do good to, to take away from this passage. Some of these things that we're going to look at may seem elementary, they are, they're simple, there are things we all know, There are things we all are reminded of, but I think sometimes that, that those simple things, the things that seem the easiest, the most straightforward that we can all tell each other, we all know deep down, sometimes those are things we need to be reminded of the most. Uh, they're things that, that we need to have our minds brought back to over and over again, so we're going to do that this morning. Turn with me, Acts chapter 16, I'm going to begin by just just reading the entire passage that we're going to be looking at this morning, and then we'll get into it. Acts chapter 16, and we're going to begin in verse 22. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates joined in attacking them, and tore off their garments, and gave them orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison, and fastened their feet in the stocks. that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and they have thrown us into prison, and now they send us out in secret? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid. For they realized that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. When they had seen the brothers and encouraged them, they departed. The First thing I want to look at, and it's something that's, that's pointed out often, is the singing of Paul and Silas. In, in verses 22 and through 25, we see it. But I don't think sometimes we realize just how profound their worship is in this setting. These are men who had just been brutally beaten. They had been flogged, thrown into prison. And in that moment, when things seemed low, when things seemed like they couldn't get any worse, when they were pretty much at rock bottom, in that moment, they turned to God. And song, even in a horrible situation, they saw fit to praise God, to praise Him for their affliction, that they could be counted worthy for what they had gone through. I think it was also an attempt to try to reach the other prisoners. The situation they were in did not change their devotion to the Lord. It did not change their willingness to lean on Him, to praise Him, to give Him thanks. They were with it, no matter what they were going through. Go back to Psalm chapter 9 with me. Psalm 9. I'm going to begin in verse 9. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble, and those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. Paul and Silas fit this description here. They're the afflicted. They're the people going through the ringer. They're the people who have it rough, and he's a stronghold for them, and they realize that. They don't turn away from him when things are rough. They don't look to blame him. They don't look to to run away from what got them here, which was the gospel in the first place. No, they praise God all the more. Go over to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, a passage we all know very well. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We're going to be tested. We're going to have struggles. We're going to have hardships just like Paul and Silas did. As Christians, we are not immune from that. How are we going to handle it? Are we going to handle it the way Paul and Silas did? By praising God? Counting it a blessing that we were worthy? Or are we going to run away from Him and blame Him and sulk and whine for the struggles we have to go through, or we're going to seek to praise Him through. Another thing about their singing that sticks out to me, again, this this is a little elementary, but it's something that I need. Like I said, they just finished being beaten. yet They were willing to put forth the effort to sing and praise God, and loud enough for others to hear. How often is it on Sunday morning that we show up here, with one goal in mind, we're supposed to come and praise God and uplift one another. And yeah, it's early, and on Sunday, that's the day we, we ought to get, get get sleep in. It's the weekend. Maybe we're tired. We stayed up too late on Saturday night, and we're just not in it this week. And I just don't want to put forth the effort. And, you know, singing, I'm just not feeling that right now. I'm not really that joyful. I don't want to get for, give forth the effort. And we're not willing to praise Him the way He's asked to be praised. We're not willing to put forth full effort in our song service in whatever our worship may be. We're not willing to give Him full effort. Turn back to Psalm 105 this time. Psalm 105. They were willing to praise in a jail cell after being beaten, and sometimes we're not willing to give the Lord the praise and the glory that He needs Despite our richly blessed, cushy life that we live, and the fact that we get to come here and be with other Christians and have it easy and and have the privilege of praising Him, and we're not willing to do it. Psalm 105, beginning in verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Sing to Him. Sing praises to Him. Tell of His wondrous works. Glory in His holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord Rejoice. Look over to 106, chapter 106, verse 1. Praise the Lord. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. 108, beginning in verse 1. My heart is is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make melody with all my being. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. Is that our attitude toward worship? Are we that serious about it? Do we view it that way? Are we looking for every chance we can get to praise the Lord for what he's done, or are we reluctant to even put in full effort? How do we view it? Do we view it as a chore, something we've got to do? Are we willing to praise him all the time and give him thanks for what he does, no matter the situation we're in? It's one of the things he's commanded of us and in Ephesians chapter five and verse 19 and 20. we all know, we're supposed to sing and exhort one another and praise him. But yes, yeah, sometimes we <clears throat> find that too big of a challenge. I don't know how Paul and Silas I don't know how their voices were. Maybe they were absolutely angelic when it came to singing. I don't know. Maybe they just had the voice of angels. But I highly doubt after being beaten within an inch of life that they sounded too good. I doubt it. Yet they didn't make any excuses. They didn't make the excuses of, oh, I can't sing, or singing hurts right now because I just got beaten to death. They didn't make any excuses come between them and praising their God. I can sing bad enough to ruin an entire song service, I can't carry a tune in a bucket. I'm horrible. If it was up to me, I would drown out in the crowd and nobody would hear me. That's how I'd like it. I wouldn't hear myself. It's easy for me to make excuses that I can't sing and be real quiet. That's not going to cut it. I don't have to sound good. Any of those verses we just read about praising the Lord talk about quality? No. Talks about effort. And I need to be willing to put in effort just as they were in a jail cell fresh off a beating. If they can do it then, I think I can manage it on Sunday morning. And so can you. Same thing I want to notice about Paul and Silas from this text is, is how they handle adversity, how they handle struggles, how they handle trouble. When troubles and rough patches arise in life, we really have two options. We can wallow in it, we can complain, we can get down, We can whine, we can let the troubles ruin our mood, ruin our day, bring us down even further. Or we can turn to, lean on, and praise God for the good that is in our life and for the suffering we're going through. It's your two options, one way or the other. And the right choice is a lot easier said than done. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. I don't know about you, but just about every day I got some grumbling or disputing going on about something. I got a lot of homework. I like to complain about how much homework I got. I like to complain about my brothers and how they drive me up a wall. I like to complain about going to work after school because I need to be doing homework. I complain a lot. If you work with people, you probably all complain to each other all the time. It's easy to complain. We live in a world full of it. It is really easy to let the slightest inconvenience ruin our day and make us a negative Nelly and just be no fun to be around. We already read James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4, but we don't need to complain about it. We need to count it as joy that we endure some suffering sometimes. Because when we handle things the right way, when we handle things without grumbling and complaining, and instead we're thankful and praising to the Lord all the time, not only does that help us and we're fulfilling commandments and it keeps our mood better, but it has an effect on others as well. Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now you may be wondering where I'm going with this. And my point is, if we're going to fulfill that commandment, to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, if we're going to do that, then we need to be people that others are going to want to come to about their problems. When you have problems and, and you're going to lean on somebody else, who are you going to lean to? Are you going to lean on the person who, who whines and complains and makes a big dramatic deal out of nothing and, and, and just grumbles all the time and makes things seem so much worse than they are? Is that the person you're going to run to when you've got issues? Or are you going to go to the person who always seems to find a way to put a positive spin on things and give the glory back to God and see the positive? And find the good in it. And lift you up and make you feel better and help you work through it. Which person are you going to go to? I'm going to go to the second one. If we're going to fulfill Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2, I think it has a little bit of a bearing on how we handle our own problems. That we don't complain about them all the time. So that people are willing to come to us. And we can help people with their issues. We need to handle complaining the right way. We don't need to blame God. We don't need to get angry with God. We don't need to wallow in it. We don't need to whine and complain and let it drag us down. We need to keep trudging and give him the praise and the glory for everything he has blessed us with because he's given us more than we could ever possibly deserve. We need to remember that, even when things are a little bit rough sometimes. Another thing I want to notice is how Paul and Silas, they were willing to continue in suffering as long as they needed to. They weren't looking for their first chance to get out. They weren't looking for the first chance they had to run away from the trouble. As long as the Lord needed them to stay in suffering, they were going to stay. They weren't going anywhere. The gospel needed them to be in trouble. They were going to endure it. Not only did they not wallow and whine about their suffering, they said, bring it on as long as it needs to be here. Look in verse 26, back in Acts chapter 16, look at verses 26 through 28. And suddenly there's a great earthquake. So the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke, he saw that the prison doors were open. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. I don't know about you, but if I was in prison and the doors came open because an earthquake, I'm getting out of there. I'm on the run. We talked this morning about the shipwreck. If I was Paul, I'm getting out of there. I'm not staying around to keep being in prison. But they just hang out. They're there. And why? Because they know what's about to happen. And they know that there's more work to be done. And they know that to get the gospel and do with it what needs to be done, they're going to have to endure some more suffering. And they're not just looking to get out of it. They're looking to do what God needed to be done. They could have run, but they stayed put. They stayed put to do more work. And then, even after staying and converting the jailer, they willingly went back into prison. We look, after they've converted him that night, they're back in jail. The magistrates send them to have them released. They went back in willingly. Not only did they didn't run. They didn't fight being put back in chains. And then finally in verses 36 through 39, they're released. But even then, in verse 40, we see that they, they didn't cut out of town immediately. You know, uh, we've already seen it in, in past times in Acts where uh, the officials will, will imprison them and beat them and, and release them and then change their mind and put them right back in. And they could have saw this coming again. You know, well, we've been set free. We might as well get out of here while we have the chance. No, they hung around and went and saw Lydia and encouraged the brethren and did more work for the gospel before they left town. They weren't just running from trouble. They were running to the gospel and what needed to be done. They were willing to suffer as long as they needed to. Back to uh, another story I alluded alluded to back in Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5 This is not a new theme or a new trend with the apostles. They've done this before. Acts chapter 5, I'm going to kind of skip around here in this passage. Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them into the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Again, if I'm let out and told, hey, go do exactly what you just did to get put in prison, I'm probably not doing it. I'm probably running for my life. But they had no second guesses. They went right back and started doing exactly what had just landed them in a jail cell. Pick up here in verse 27. When they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you are. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered them, saying, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and for forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom has given us, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. So they go back, they preach, and again they're brought in saying, what are you doing? We told you not to do this. And you're doing it again. And they said, right, you can do whatever you want. Go ahead, put us back in prison, beat us, whatever you want to do. We don't care. We're going to do what God told us to do. That's all that matters, and you can throw whatever at us you want to throw at us. We're going to do what we know we're supposed to do, no matter the consequences. Drop down to verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them, and they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they let them go. Then they left the presidents of the council, and they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer, suffer dishonor for the name and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They didn't stop. They did it, and they were in prison for it, and they did it again, and they were questioned, and they did it again, and they were beaten, and they just kept doing it. And they praised the Lord that they were counted kind of worthy to suffer such things. That's more faith than I got sometimes. That's more dedication to the gospel than I got sometimes. Sometimes I'll back down if I'm afraid so-and-so over here ain't going to like what i got to say. That's the only threat I'm facing. I need to be a little bolder, like Paul and Silas, and I beg to argue that at some points we all do. They were willing to stay in the face of danger and endure whatever they needed to endure, no matter the cost, for the sake of the gospel and where it needed to get. Think about the stories that we know from historical accounts and other records about how the apostles died. Just about every last one of them was a martyr for the sake of the gospel. They were willing to go to death for it. Think about back in the Old Testament. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When they were faced, are you going to do what God said, or are you going to face death in the fiery furnace? There's no second guessing. Throw us in. We're staying faithful. Think about Paul and all he endured. Shipwrecks and beatings and imprisonments. And the list goes on and on and on about what Paul had to go through. He stayed faithful at all times. He didn't back down. He didn't waver, not once. His goal was the gospel, not his own well-being. It's an attitude we need a little more of sometimes. Because the apostles, they understood the weight of this. They understood just how important it was. And how getting it out there and getting it to people was really important. And I'm glad they did. We wouldn't have it. I'm glad they were willing to face that. They understood the importance. Do we? Are we willing to get this out there and realize how important it is like they were? The stakes are the same. We need to be faithful in doing it no matter what we've got to face. The last thing I want to notice from this passage is actually not about Paul and Silas, but rather about the jailer. And it's his journey to salvation and how he gets there. It seems like, from the best I can tell, that this jailer, yes, he's called the Philippian jailer, but he's most likely a Roman, a Roman official. He's a jailer from the, the, the Roman army put over the prison in Philippi. Either way, most likely he had a polytheistic background, a polytheistic understanding of what gods were, of what religion was. The one and true and living God was most likely completely foreign to this Philippian jailer. He didn't get that. He didn't know what that was. Look at verse 30 back in Acts chapter 16. Look at verse 30. He says there, and then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? You know, I spent most of my life thinking that this man just gets it. He gets there's a one true and living God. And he knows he needs remission for his sins, and he's asking them what to do to get that. I don't think that's the case. I think this man, as we talked about this morning, he knows that if those prisoners are gone, his life's on the line. He's gone. He's going to be killed if those prisoners are gone. And he understands that. And he understands that these men have been in here praising some god, and then their god came through and did this earthquake and released them, and that's a powerful god. And it looks like my only option here to have my life saved is those two men know something to get me out of this. So he runs to him and says, all right, whatever power you got on your side, what do I got to do to get you to save my life so I don't die? I think that's what he's really asking here. It's not a spiritual salvation he's talking about. It's a physical one. So their answer in the, the next couple verses about believe in the Lord Jesus, you and your whole household, and you'll be saved and all this, he was probably like, huh? That don't make a lot of sense. How is that going to save my life? And it tells us that they preached unto him Jesus. They told him the rest of everything he needed to understand. They filled in what he didn't get. And then he understood. Their answer at first probably wasn't what he was looking for, but they explained it to him. Do you think that from the beginning of this, that a polytheistic man at the beginning of the night, more than likely, to the end of the night after an earthquake and Paul and Silas teaching him about who Jesus is and what he needs to do, do you think that the Philippian jailer understood perfectly everything. He just got it, and he was ready to go be the perfect Christian man he needed to be for the rest of his life. He had everything figured out. I don't think so. That would be a miraculous event if he did. I don't think he understands it all. Do you think he knew everything that was expected of him? What he had to go out and do? I don't think so. But he was ready for baptism. And he was ready to be saved. I had a friend one night, one of my absolute best friends. And we were at church camp. And we were having one of those deep, late night, emotional church camp talks that everybody has you know, the, the really sappy ones. And he hadn't been baptized yet. He was, I mean, a, a great Christian guy from a great Christian family. And. Honestly, I had kind of assumed up to this point that he had been baptized. I didn't even know he hadn't. I guess that shows how much of a good friend I am. But I didn't know he hadn't. But he told me that he hadn't. And we, I was like, well, why? You know, I know you believe everything, and I, I mean, I've known you for this long. Why haven't you? He said, well, man, I'm, I'm just not ready. I got so much to figure out. I got so much in my life to fix before I'm ready to become a Christian. I got to be so much better than I am right now before I'm ready to do that. I say, man, no you don't. No you don't. That ain't what baptism's all about. Baptism's not the finish line. We're going to talk a little more about that in the next sermon. Baptism's not the finish line. You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to have everything exactly right. You don't have to have your life perfectly on the straight and narrow and have everything going great. Because we're never going to get there. If that's what you're waiting for to put on Christ... You're going to be waiting for the rest of your life. You're not going to get there. No Christian's going to. It's not what baptism's for. Baptism is, is for the Philippian jailer, and when he realized he had sin in his life and things that need to be taken care of and things that need to be fixed, that's what baptism is for. That's when baptism comes in, and then we figure out the rest after it. And we do our best to become what we're supposed to be after it. It's the starting line, not the finish line. You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to be some perfect Christian. You just need to know that you have messed up, and you need the Lord. You need the forgiveness of your sins, and you're ready to start that walk with Him. Think about back in Acts chapter 8, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch, likely for most of his life, had been a polytheistic background too. Now, obviously, he had converted to Judaism and had been in Jerusalem worshiping with the Jews but he didn't understand everything either. Philip preaches to him, and within a matter of just going down the road a little bit, the eunuch knows enough to be baptized. He didn't have everything figured out. He knew what he needed to know. So what was my point in saying this? My point is this. If you're like my friend that night, who knows that you have sinned in your life, who knows that you need to make it right with God, who knows that you need to start that walk with him, Don't sit around and wait to have everything figured out. Don't sit around and wait till you think you're perfect or worthy enough or good enough to get baptized because that's not what it's about. Not what it's about. Start the race now. Figure out the rest of it as you go. It's part of the race. And the other point in saying it it is for me because I struggle sometimes with teaching and talking to people that don't know the truth. I feel like sometimes i got to get them to understand everything before I get to the point of of teaching them what they need to do to save their souls. That i got to have them to agree with me on every little thing. That I have to win the argument. That I have to prove to them that I am right about everything. And that they need to change everything about their life and come over and and live the exact same way I do. And yes, at some point I need to teach them what I believe. And then try to convince them of the truth. That all needs to take place. But I need to remember what the primary goal is. It's not to have them perfect and exactly like I am and just figured it all out. That's not step number one. That's for the rest of it. Step number one is let's save their soul and get them to realize that they're in their life and they need to take care of it. That's step number one. And then we need to help them figure out the rest of it after that. The apostles did it that way. I think sometimes we need to remember what the goal is. Sometimes I'm not great about that. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to have everything in order. You don't have to have everything figured out to start the race. That's running the race. You can start it when you realize that you need Jesus and you need his salvation and you need your sin taken care of. So a conclusion this morning. Paul and Silas, they were willing to suffer for God They were willing to stay in the face of danger. They were willing to take whatever life threw at them, and they were willing to still praise him in the midst of it all for the sake of the gospel. They had their priorities straight. And look how often in the scripture that commitment to the gospel and to the Lord resulted in saved souls. We need to have that commitment. And we need to have the same attitude towards struggle and affliction and handling it the way they did. We need to remember what the goal is, what our priorities are, that this book and what it says is priority number one. We get that out there no matter what we have to endure along the way. If you're here this morning and you haven't given your life to God and you haven't started the race, why not do that this morning? There is no better way to live. There is no better family to be a part of. And you can start running your race. And as your brethren, we will help you figure out what you need to figure out along the way. Why not do that this morning? If you're here and you have things between you and your God, why not make them right? Why not get back into the fold, let the family help you, and be a partaker of those promises that he's given us once again. If you need to make things right with your God this morning, make those needs known as we stand and sing.